All right. Well, again, welcome to Hope Lower Town. Um, again, I'm Brian, uh, lead pastor here. And um, yeah, we are in, well, I've already lost count. I think we're in week five of going through Romans. Oh, one thing I did uh, forget to mention, I did order a couple more of the uh, Bibles, uh, the book of Romans with the just the printed uh, sheets of notes, spaces for notes. And so um, they're in the back. There's a couple there. And I think Ben puts them in the fireside room. Uh, so I ordered 10 more and I picked them up on Thursday and I was in the middle of uh, teaching systematic theology class. And one of my students was like, oh, I need one of those. And I was like, get it from your church. Don't take mine. But I gave them one. I felt weird not giving someone a Bible when they wanted it. So um, so we have nine instead of 10 extra ones. Um, no, So feel free to grab one of those if you'd like to uh, follow along and take notes. So all right, week five of, of Romans. I uh, want to start off with a question um, which might be a little weird to ask your neighbor, so we're not gonna not gonna have you turn and meet someone this morning. But um, have you ever seen somebody doing something like maybe out of necessity or whatever it may be, and and asked the question or, or said to yourself or maybe said out loud, "I would never do that." You know what I mean? That 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 temptation, that thing that's going on, would never happen. Uh, think Aladdin uh, in Aladdin, uh, right? He's stealing bread. Why would you, I would never steal. I don't care how you don't steal. Uh, that's, right? I would never do that. And, and what we're going to see um, is that it's, we are so quick to uh, judge or so quick to think that we're better uh, or uh, that we would never do that. My, my boss um, often uses the phrase, not often, it sounds like, oh man, what, why does he always say that? Uh, he says, I, I'm two bad decisions away from losing my job. And, and there's just some reality to that, of, uh, that, that when we uh, think, oh, I'm above that, and, and we're going to look at even a passage where Jesus condemns people to think, oh, I never would have done that, right? I think maybe we might, might do that to think, oh, if I was Adam or Eve in the garden, I never would have eaten the apple or whatever it was, right? Uh, that, I never would have done that. And, and I think we're just so quick to do that rather than to, to recognize our own um, downfall of our sinful nature. So again, we're going to be looking at Romans 1 through 3 up until the summer, and then uh, we'll take a break for the summer, and then we'll pick up again uh, 4 through 6 in the fall, and so on. We'll finish this book. It'll take a little while. So um, again, just to recap, and I know I've been recapping every single week, but it's, I think it's really important uh, just to kind of get us all on the same page. So the Apostle Paul is writing this. He has this wild conversion story, goes from uh, Saul, a persecutor of the church, gets saved. Christ calls him to be set apart, a servant of Christ, a, a slave of Christ. That is his first um, uh, descriptor of himself is that he is a slave to Christ and then called to be an apostle, one, one who's set apart, sent out uh, for, for Christ. And, and then we have to look at Rome. And so we spent a whole week looking at Rome. Who are those in Rome? The Gentiles and the churches in Rome, that they would have started these church not by apostles or not by some miracles or by witnessing Jesus's rebirth. So there's a lot of similarities between us and them in that we haven't seen the risen Lord. We haven't witnessed some um, crazy miracles that Jesus would have been performing. They planted the church because of the gospel. And so that's what's going on. And that they're, they're Gentiles, uh, that they might've been started by a Jewish community, but they were kicked out of Rome by Claudius. Uh, and then now they're coming back in, they're seeing things that are different. So there's some racial tensions within the church uh, between Jew and all other ethnicities. 
And so it's just, um, and so that's where we're at. And so I, every week I've been looking at this and if you've been here the last five weeks, you're probably sick of this, but too bad. I want you to memorize this. So I'm gonna say it every week that that number one, we have to grasp the text in their town. That's why we look at the Apostle Paul. That's why we look at Rome, that the book of Romans is written for us. It's not written to us. Um, and so we have to understand what would it have meant to first century Christians there in Rome? And we gauge that width of the river, point two there, uh, see how wide it is, what language, what culture, what, what uh, covenant are they in? And so again, that river is gonna be very narrow um, compared to a lot of uh, other parts of the Bible. And then we cross the principalizing bridge. What's the main point that Paul was trying to say to the church that we can also principalize uh, into our own lives and into our own church for consult the biblical roadmap. We'll be doing that a lot today. And then and only then can we grasp the text in our town. So two weeks ago, looked at and kind of introduced the whole book of Romans and, and looked at the main point of, of Romans. What's the main point? Again, a popular question, one that we're gonna actually uh, really dig into today is how can a loving God send anyone to hell? It's a great question. Uh, it's a question again that everyone needs to wrestle with. Everyone needs to wrestle with that. Um, and, but, but that's not the question that Paul is trying to answer. He's trying to, to flip it on its head and he's trying to say, how, can, how is it that a just God can allow anyone into heaven? How, how is it that a God who is holy and separate allows sinners into his presence? And that's what the Apostle Paul is really going to be getting after today. And so the title of today's sermon is just the thesis statement of Romans. And so we're gonna be looking at just two verses, verses 16 and 17, uh, that he's just gonna, with these two verses, these sentences, uh, he's setting the tone, right? So he did the whole introduction, and now he's gonna say, okay, th this is where we're gonna be going. For the rest of the letter, I'm going to try to prove this statement that I'm about to make, right? So the thesis statement is a sentence that uh, stakes the topic and purpose of your paper. A good thesis statement will direct the structure of your essay and will allow your reader to understand the ideas you will discuss within your paper. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here in 16 and 17. One commentary says this, um, these one and a half verses here at the same time are both uh, an integral part of Paul's expression of his readiness to preach the gospel in Rome and also the statement of the theological theme, which is going to be worked out in the main body of the epistle, right? So the whole thing is kind of hinged on this. And so if you're able, would you mind stand, uh, mind standing with me as we read this out loud and go ahead and it's a smaller one. So why don't you read it out loud uh, with me, along with me. Um, and so let's, uh, so this is Romans chapter one, 16 through 17, and let's read this aloud. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Thank you, you may be seated. So that's it. The rest of however many 60, 70, 80 sermons that we're gonna be preaching in this book hinge on this, on this thesis statement. And it might seem like, wow, that, it, it seems pretty straightforward. I, I, I think I understand what Paul is talking about. And yet there's a lot more going on here. Like I said, getting back into that question of how is it that a just God can allow anyone 
into heaven. And so um, I want to follow the fours. And I don't, I confuse myself. I started writing the word four so many times as outlined that I was like, four, F-O-R? Is that even how you spell four? Um, it's a weird word. And do I put it, is it four with an apostrophe? I don't know what's going on right now. I started just using the number four, thinking that would help me and it didn't. Uh, and so we're going to follow the fours in this text as kind of the outline uh, this morning. And so you're going to see, I just, you know, highlighted there are, there are five fours in the two verses that we just read, um, but they're not all um, the word four uh, in our English. They are English translation, the word four, uh, but we're going to be focusing on those three fours. Okay, following me? <laughs> I told you, it was just kind of confusing. We're going to follow those three fours. And those were that word four there, um, F-O-R, in, in the Greek, again, that, that really matters. You don't need to be a Greek scholar or anything like that. It, it does not necessarily matter. But those words there in the Greek is gar, which just means because, right? Like because of this previous thing that happened, it's, it's, it's connecting itself to something else. The other two um, are ice, which just means more of for or to or into, right? That, that kind of just rolls into the next thing rather than hinging on the previous statement, okay? But it's all translated in our English for, all right? Okay, great. Glad that was clear. Okay, so let's follow the fours. The first four, <laughs> What is it there for? Okay, so that's why I started using the number four and it just got very confusing. Uh, so here we go. The first four, what is it there for? Looking at that first one, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. That first one there is what we're gonna be uh, looking at. For I am not ashamed. Right, and now it links back into the previous works, right? Be like I said, it means because. Well, because of what? Because of Something previously stated, I am not ashamed of the gospel. So what did he just previously say in verses 14 and 15? He says, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish, and I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, right? So this links what he just said to preach the gospel in Rome to Gentiles, to all people is linked then because then I am not ashamed. Right now, why would he be ashamed? Why would he feel the need to have, why, what do you, why even bring this up? The, the word here, ashamed, uh, when uh, every commentary I read, this was more of a psychological ashamedness, not like I'm gonna, I'm gonna cower in, in shame, uh, but more of like, do I, do I have the boldness to do this thing in spite of what other people might think? Why would people want to put shame on him for preaching the gospel to all people? Well, because this is exactly what happens that there were people who didn't like the fact that he was preaching the gospel to all people. They didn't like the fact that he was preaching the gospel to Romans or to Gentiles. There were those whom disagreed with Paul, including the apostle Peter, right? And so again, we consult the biblical roadmap and we can look at Galatians chapter two and we read an, uh, an, an altercation that happens between the apostle Paul and Peter, and this is exactly what Paul is talking about. I'm not ashamed to preach the gospel to all people. Whereas Peter seemed to have a little bit of shame because of his Jewish heritage and roots. It says this in Galatians chapter two, starting in verse 11. But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. 
okay? Again, two groups, just like in Rome, where you've got uh, Jewish Christians, they were ethnically Jewish who worshiped Yahweh, uh, that were religiously Jewish, that converted to Christianity, and there were some aspects of the religion that they grew up with, of legalism and law, of purity and ritual and rites, and one of them was food and eating habits, and they were very different from the Gentiles, extremely different. And so now, they're now they're coming in. Well, well, Peter shows up and he's eating. He's hanging out with the Gentiles, having some bacon, right? Which he, he has the dream in Acts 10. Hey, bacon's cool. We're all allowed to eat whatever we want. If God says it's clean, don't let anyone call it unclean. And then he's eating bacon and then he sees his Jewish friends and he's like, oh, I'm gonna slip on out, right? I'm, I'm, I'm gonna leave them alone. I don't wanna be, I don't be associated with those dirty Gentile Christians, right? I'm a real clean Christian. And Paul shows up to Peter and was like, what are you doing? Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Right? He's, Paul's a smart guy. So this doesn't make any sense. You can't flip-flop on this. How can you expect the Gentiles to take over into Jewish laws if you're not even obeying all the Jewish laws? You can't do this. You can't mesh both worlds together. Jesus explains this by talking about wineskins. You can't take new wine and put it in old wineskins or it bursts. You cannot mix old and new. It doesn't work. It only has to be new. And Paul got that. And Paul's now preaching the gospel to all people. So he's writing to the Romans saying, I'm not ashamed to preach the gospel to all of you Gentiles who are in Rome. I'm not ashamed of that. The second four is the power of the gospel. For because I'm preaching the gospel to all ethnicities, I am not ashamed of that gospel. For because, why am I not ashamed of that gospel? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's the gospel. It is that simple. Jesus talks about this, Paul, Peter, they all talk about how simple this is, that little children can understand this. This is something that I remember comprehending as a young child. My dad was preaching and used this weird analogy of terrorists. And I was like, wow, God loves me, <laughs> right? And I remember that, I got it. Hit, hit, let me explain the analogy that he used. All, that was like, that sounds weird. Uh, he, he said he was a pastor and, and as a preacher's kid, you, don't, you just zone out. You don't, think, you don't listen to dad preach, who does that? What a weirdo up there. I uh, get it. And, and I wasn't listening, but he used me, called my name for an illustration. And he said, if, if a terrorist were to throw a grenade in here, um, my reaction wouldn't be, I'm gonna grab Brian and throw him on the grenade and save all of you. He said, my first reaction would be, I'm gonna grab Brian and get out of here as fast as I can. But he said, but in essence, that's what God does. He puts his son on the cross. He takes your place. And I was like, wow, God really loves me. It's that simple. <laughs> it's that simple. Believe, believe in Christ. And so what is the gospel? According to this verse from Paul, it's the power of God. And what does it do? It saves everyone who believes, everyone, all ethnicities. And this goes back to Paul's main question. And he's gonna to get to this. How can a just God allow anyone into heaven? He does it by his gospel. He does it by his power 
and his salvation. It's something that God is doing on our behalf. Uh, one, uh, Tim Keller quoted this guy, uh, Theodoret, a Syrian bishop. Sorry, that must have hit my uh, shoulder. I won't look down so much, that was my fault. Theodoret, a Syrian bishop uh, in the fifth century likened the gospel to a pepper. It says this, a pepper outwardly seems to be cold, but the person who crunches it between the teeth experiences the sensation of burning fire. It's so simple, Right? You, you share the God, this is the good news of Jesus. Believe and he will forgive you of sin. It's that simple. And yet only those who really believe it can really understand the sensation of salvation. So then what does believe in this statement mean? Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean no. There is a vast difference between acquiring knowledge and believing something. Even the demons know, even the demons believe, but they didn't believe enough. It doesn't just mean no. This is something that I, I, I pray every single week, not just here at church, but even in a systematic theology class where it's just like, I just wanna download information about who God is and our relationship with him and how does this work and what the Holy Spirit and what's that mean? And the tr just acquiring knowledge does nothing if I don't believe it. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, do you really believe? I mean, like, th like think about this. Do you believe that 2,000 years ago that there was a guy named Jesus or Yeshua and that he walked on this earth and he claimed to be God and then he walked on water, that there, were a, there was a storm and his disciples wake him up and he gets up and he rebukes the waves? You believe that? You believe that Jesus rose from the dead? What? Do you believe that he actually has the ability to forgive your sins? That's wild. Do I just know this? Does it just become old hat of going to church and yeah, sure, this is Christianity. Yeah, Jesus this, Jesus that. Do we believe this? Uh, he goes on here to say, uh, it's a salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'm not gonna get into that uh, phrase this morning, only because the apostle Paul is going to really get into that later on uh, in, in his letter. And so I'm, I, it's gonna feel like I'm skipping this portion. It's because I'm skipping this portion, okay? But I'm gonna come back to that idea, I promise. Um, again, I think because the Jew first, right? He's gonna say, was there an advantage then of being a Jew? He's gonna get into all that. Okay, uh, is the law bad or what's going on? So is it better to be a Greek or he's gonna get into that, okay? So we'll, we'll, we'll talk, we'll, we will come back to that idea. But right now I um, had to choose my battles and I chose the fours, the three fours. <laughs> the third four, uh, which we'll spend the remainder of our time on this morning is this idea of the righteousness of God. Verse 17, four, this is that word again, because, Okay. So because of the gospel, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And that, that for, from faith for faith is just to faith. From faith, the beginning of my faith to the end of my faith. But that first one, that for, that other gar, because, right? Again, it links back. But what is this it? Because 
in the good news, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, right? So you have, for in it, and that refers back to the gospel because he just says that in verse 16, for the God, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it, what is the it? It links to the gospel. You go back to 17, for in it refers again, back to the gospel, the good news, the belief in Jesus. For in this gospel, because of this, is just kind of moving us forward, propelling us forward, hinged on the things that were previously said. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So again, how can a just God allow sinful humanity into his presence? Drum roll, here's the answer. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God, the rightness of God is revealed. So how in the world do we interpret this phrase, the righteousness of God. There's a couple other ways. There's five different ways we could really get into, but I I chose the two that I think were the most applicable, the most, um, uh, at least, uh, ways that people would maybe interpret this or have historically interpreted. And one is to interpret this as the justice of God. God's goodness, God's righteousness. So the gospel is, I need to be as righteous as God is the justice of God. Uh, going back to medieval thought and theology, again, one commentary just in the book of Romans here says this, medieval theology tended to consume the righteousness, sorry, contend, con, okay, let's start that over. Rewind it. Here we go. Medieval theology tended to construe the righteousness of God as the righteousness that he possesses and demands Gabriel Beale, an influential 14th century theologian, mitigated the demand with a simple uh, prescription. Do what is in you. And then there it is in the Latin, which I'm not gonna try to read. That is, do your best. Do what you can do. And God will complete it. For God chose to obligate himself to infuse grace into all those who do what they can, especially by taking the sacraments. Right, do what you can do, God. You just do your best. You just be better. Be as the, the best, best you, the best version of you you could possibly be. And then God will accept you. Then He will give you the grace to be good enough. And you do that by taking the sacraments, by obeying the the laws, and, and being a good Christian within the church. And then you'll be then you'll be good enough. The problem is. Uh, which we're going to look at the life of Martin Luther here just briefly, and just some of his works on this passage. Luther tried that. And Luther tried to be a good person. He tried to be the best possible priest he could be. And he always said, yeah, but I could always be a little bit better, couldn't I? I could always do more. I could always be be a better person. And so he was always feeling that he was falling short of the glory of God, which the Apostle Paul will talk about in chapter three. There was a a story that he tells that he went to uh, on a pilgrimage, this place is called uh, Scala Sancta in uh, and, and I don't know, it's somewhere in Rome. He, so he took a pilgrimage to Rome and they had, because this is what, I don't know, the church did back then, is they, they took uh, stairs from Jerusalem that Jesus maybe, maybe would have walked on and they moved the staircase to somewhere in Rome. 
Um, and, and then you would pray. You would crawl up the stairs on your knees. And every time you would do that, you would pray in Our Father. And then, you'd, and then every time on a stair that you prayed the Our Father, uh, supposedly um, uh, people that were in purgatory were set free from purgatory. And Luther gets to the top and he says, who knows if that worked? Like that, like that that's, that's, that's the, when I think I gotta, I gotta live up to this. Well, did I do it right? Did I say it right? Did I have my heart in the right attitude? Did I, it's always not enough. And that was Luther's problem. Sproul, R.C. Sproul says this about, man, I did it again. I don't know what I'm doing. Now there was a linguistic trick that was going on here too. And it was this, that the Latin word for justification which was used at the time in the church history, which Luther would have been reading his Bible there in Latin. And church history was this. And it's the word from which we get the English word justification. The Latin word justificare, and it came from the Roman judicial system. And the term justificare is made up of the word justice, which is justice or righteousness, and the verb, the infinitive, Facare, which is which means to make. And so the Latin fathers understood the doctrine of justification is what happens when God, through the sacraments of the church and elsewhere, make unrighteous people righteous. So just by reading this in Latin and understanding some, some Roman judicial systems, it was do your best, which we just read. Do what is in you. But my best just still simply isn't enough. Luther later on, he wrote this about this way of reading and interpreting this righteousness, the justice of God or the righteousness of God as the justice of God that I need to own up to. Luther says this, at first I clearly saw the free grace of God is absolutely necessary to attain to light and eternal life. And I anxiously and busily work to understand the word of Paul in Romans 1.17. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. I questioned this passage for a long time and labored over it. For my expression, righteousness of God, for the expression, righteousness of God, barred my way. The phrase was customarily explained to mean that the righteousness of God is a virtue by which he himself righteous and condemns sinners. The righteousness of God, that is the wrath of God. But as I often read this passage, I wish that God had never revealed the gospel for who could love a God who was angry and who judge and condemn people. Luther, um, I know I've shared this before, but there was a garden that he would walk through on a daily basis that had this relief of, of, the, of an image of Jesus on a rainbow. And, and he was so angry and wrathful towards sinful humanity that even in the, this image of, of stone and concrete, that his veins were popping out of his neck. That was Luther's understanding of God. And I think that we in our culture might have that same view. Oh, he's wrathful, he's vengeful. We're never good enough, oh, Right? There's something about being a pastor that's just, that, that, that you have no idea how often that happens. Playing golf with someone, right? And on hole three, they're like, oh, what do you do for work? I'm like, oh, I'm a pastor. Like, oh, sorry, right? <laughs> Don't judge me. It's like, okay, right? I, we're fine, okay? It happens. We have this view of God as wrathful and I'm not good enough. And it was the same for Luther, but then there was a 
change in how he understood the righteousness of God and how we should understand this idea of the righteousness of God, that we are made right before God. Again, answering that question, how is it that a just God can allow anyone into his presence? It's not because they're good enough. It's because he makes them good enough. He makes them right. It is his righteousness imputed through Christ to us. Luther again says this, night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. And then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. He continues in a different story of retelling the same thing. He says, whoa, you mean the righteousness by which I will be saved is not mine? <laughs> and the author here of Here I Stand then continues, it is what Luther called a justitia alienium, sure, an alien righteousness a righteousness that belongs proper, properly to somebody else. It is a righteousness that is extra nos, outside of us, namely the righteousness of Christ. How is it that just God can allow anyone in by being, as we're gonna get there in Romans chapter three, by being both just and the justifier, that he can remain and stay in holy and, and unapproachable by sin because he then cleanses us of our sin and then we can approach him only through the finished work of God. Nothing that we can add. And then the apostle Paul then says this, for in it, the gospel, because of the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. From the beginning of my faith to the end of it, he is the author and the finisher of our faith as the book of Hebrews would tell us. And he says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here, the apostle Paul, again, consulting the biblical roadmap is gonna quote specifically Habakkuk 2.4. He's gonna quote an Old Testament prophet whose life is not going so well for him, right? Things are not going great for the guy, Habakkuk. And even in the midst of his turmoil, he says, yet the righteous shall live by faith. I walk by faith in the righteousness of God that was given to me because of the gospel. And that is his power and salvation of everyone who believes. It's that simple. The righteous shall live by faith. And again, the, the word that we use to, to take an Old Testament passage, one that a New Testament author reveals and, and brings up. So here, the apostle Paul is bringing up Habakkuk, but he's not just bringing up Habakkuk 2, Four, I think he's bringing up and wants to recall more of that book. And it's that word metalepsis. So there's more going on here than meets the eye. Optimus Prime. Habakkuk 3, I couldn't, I could not. Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. So, okay, so here's what's going on in Habakkuk. And, he, and again, things are not going well for Israel as, as a prophet to Habakkuk. Verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, 
nor the fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the oil fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there will be no herd in the stalls, right? Things are not going well. And he's doing it through poetry to say, we got nothing left. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deers and he makes me tread on high places. Habakkuk is in the thick of it. He's in an incredibly difficult time in his life. And he says, yeah, but the just, the righteous live by faith. And even, even when things are, are, are bad and not going well for me, I live by faith. I may have shared this before and forgive me if I have, but I think it was just too pertinent for me not to share this. I, when I was 18, I worked at this Christian camp and conference center, the Wilds in North Carolina incredibly conservative camp, but that doesn't really matter, I guess. You're like, wait, Brian, something in your past was conservative? Yes, it was. I was 18, and uh, my dad had died uh, four years prior to this, right? I was young, and I was mad. I was incredibly pissed off at God. Um, At best, I thought God was incompetent. I could do better. Um, At worst, I thought he doesn't love me or my family, but for sure he didn't love my dad. And I was mad. I was really mad at God. Um, My dad, as far as I was concerned, was a good guy. He was a good man. He, He dedicated his entire life, the short 42 years that he had, to serving Jesus and serving others. He was a good guy. Why, God, would you kill him? Or again, by, by best circumstances, allow him to die because you're incompetent in your power. I was wrestling with, you're clearly not good because if you were good, you wouldn't let my good dad die. If you were all powerful, well, then, this, then you're not loving. I, I had to go through that. I was really, really struggling with it. And I was trying to answer those questions. How could a loving God kill my good dad? Uh, At that time, and I remember this distinctly, it was July 4th in 2004. I know some of you probably weren't even born yet. Uh, I was um, still really mad at God. And on the week I was a dishwasher and all we did was wash dishes. It was just insane amount of dirty dishes. All I did was dishes, dishes. And on the weekends though, we were allowed to take the weekend off. Imagine that. But we were the only position that worked at the camp that was allowed to have the weekend off because we worked harder than everybody else. And that was like obvious, kidding. (laughs) But we worked really hard. It was just not fun. And so on the weekends though, I would drive about 45 minutes into into Greenville, South Carolina, where my brother was living at the time. And he was going to a church. I don't remember the name of the church, but I remember I went there and there was an interim pastor, some guy who was there. And I remember he he told us the title of his sermon, the title of my sermon today is, why do bad things happen to good people? And I was like, finally, I need this answer. I need to know because I'm so mad at God. He's not good because he killed my dad. And what did this pastor do? He walks us through Habakkuk and asks the questions again, that question, why do bad things happen to good people? And he gets to Habakkuk and he gets to that phrase that the just will live 
by faith. And he looked out at the congregation and he said, why do bad things happen to good people? He said, because there's no such thing as a good people. <laughs> there's no such thing. When I, when I understand the gospel and is what Paul is gonna get to in Romans that we have all fallen short. Even my good dad was a sinner. My dad needed Jesus. He needed faith. He wasn't good. He needed God. He needed Jesus to make him right, make him righteous, not by his own works, by his own goodness. And it was just in that moment, I'll never forget it, that the blinders fell off and I could just see, not, not actually see, but just, just in my mind's eye, see Jesus with his arm around my dad saying, he's not a good guy. I am. And I needed that. That's what allowed me to go, oh yeah, you don't allow bad things to happen to good people. There are, my dad wasn't a good person. He was a sinner. He chose the sin, just like every other human being, but he relied on his savior. Jesus was standing there saying, yeah, he's one of the sinners that I died for. And so then my question changed from how could bad things happen to good people to like Paul, well, how in the world does anyone get in? And that's what Paul is gonna be looking at. The remainder of the book is that the just God is both just and justifier. He is good and all powerful. And I remember, like I said, it was July 4th, 2004. And um, the camp, the wilds was a, a pretty big camp. <laughs> and, uh, and they had a fireworks show for the staff, which is weird to think about that they would just spend money on fireworks. But we were in the middle of wherever in North Carolina, Brevard, North Carolina in the mountains, in the Appalachian Mountains, beautiful. And they're doing these fireworks and I'm just sobbing. I'm sobbing, right? I'm just, I finally felt like I, I could trust God again. And my relationship with him was restored. Not that he ever went anywhere. He was always right there walking me through it and showing me that he was in control and, and allowed me to see some things I just before hadn't understood or could comprehend. And I remember the fireworks are going off and I'm sobbing and I go back to my, my dorm room and I, my roommate that was there, um, Matthew Weathers, I'm sobbing and he's like, what's up? And I was like, I hate this camp. <laughs> I was like, I don't wanna be here. Um, I, I, I don't even know why I signed up for this stupid job. I can't stand it. And yet now I know why God wanted me to be here. He answered this really important question for me and now I wanna quit, I'm done. I'm done. I learned what I needed to learn. I'm out. And he's like, no, nah, man, you can't, you can't quit. You know what? You know, you can't do that. And I was like, yeah, you're right. And I'm not making this up. That night, my lung collapsed and I had to go back home for surgery. I got to quit my job. Uh, it was fantastic. So I'll take a lung, I'll take a collapsed lung any day over working there again. Right, I think a lot of times we write ourselves into stories and we say, I'm the good guy. I'm the good person. I'm the good girl in this story. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't act like that. I wouldn't have that attitude. And again, as I mentioned at the beginning and the outset, this same exact thing happens to Jesus in Matthew chapter 23. Verse 29, he says this, woe, right? Judgment warning to you, scribes and Pharisees, these religious leaders and zealots. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of prophets and decorate the mountains of 
the monuments of the righteous saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Jesus says, you're a hypocrite if you believe that. You don't understand how depraved you all are. You need me, Jesus is saying. You gotta have me. And again, a lot of times because of law, it makes it really easy to compare ourselves to other people and say, I, I think I'm okay. I mean, I'm not, I'm not great, I'm not good, but I'm better than that guy. I'm better than she is. And so I think I'm, I think I'm good, I think I'm okay. No, you're not. It's the whole point of this passage, the whole point of what Jesus came to this earth for, that he didn't come to, to heal those who need no physician. He came to heal those that will come to him and say, I need your help. We think I'm okay. We think God owes us or owes it to somebody that we love, owed it to my dad. Or I'm not like them. I would never do that. We, we are maybe we would have a phrase, uh, we are micro prosperity gospel, uh, gospel people, right? That I, I wouldn't get up here and say, hey, give to the church and it's gonna be, it's gonna be turned tenfold to you, right? I got a jet. Well, you don't, you shouldn't, you're, you're demons. I'm good. I could do that. Hopefully you would walk out if I did that. That's not that kind of prosperity gospel. I'm talking the micro prosperity gospel of, oh, I think I'm doing all right. I think God owes me. So in gospel application, when we read the Bible, we need to make sure that we don't read ourselves into the story as the good guy or the good gal. Only Jesus is good. Only Jesus is good. And so when Paul is trying to answer that question, how is it that a just God can allow anyone into heaven? It's not because of anything we can do or anything we can add to it. And this, listen, I say this, I've probably said it a million times. That's the gospel, yes, of going through the door, right? Okay, I, I, I believe the gospel and I go through the door. I go from unsaved to saved. I go from darkness to life. I go from death to life. And now I'm walking in the light, in the goodness. But again, this gospel, this book, excuse me, written to the Romans is written to the Roman church. It's written to people who already believe the gospel. It's written to people who already walked through the door. And so we get to walk the gospel. It's a path. It's an every single day thing and moment by moment thing, because there are times that happen to me daily over and over and over where I look at somebody and I say, man, God, aren't you glad I don't do that? Man, God, aren't you so glad I'm not like that guy? We, I, I do this, maybe you don't. I do it all the stinking time. And I need to repent of that and know that I'm not a good guy. Jesus is the good guy. And this isn't like a, 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 a what, do you, what do you call it? Like a self-deprivation, like, oh, I'm wicked, I'm evil and, and nobody likes me. And I don't, I don't mean that. I just mean, I can't do anything to earn the love of God. He already loves us to the max. He already gives his grace and his mercy to the max that while I was a sinner, he dies for me. I need to be reminded of that every day at every moment. So we're gonna have communion like we do every single week here at Lower Town. We've got the elements up here, the bread, the wafer that represents the body of Christ that's broken for us, the juice that represents his blood that is shed for us we literally get to approach this, this table, this sacred space 
All right, Luther, when he did communion back when he was a priest, that he, he was doing this thing where they believed this, this theological term called uh, transubstantiation, that the actual uh, blood and wafer uh, turn into the actual body and blood of Christ. We don't believe that here. We think this is a spiritual remembrance. But he's doing it, and as he's holding the cup above his head, his dad was there. His dad was a, a, a miner who had been really successful, and, 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 and uh, Luther was gonna be a lawyer and his dad was so proud of him. And then he decides, uh, right, he makes a deal with God, save my life from this lightning storm and I'll become a monk. And he does that. And so his dad did not like the fact that Luther was becoming a priest. And yet at his first communion service, at his first uh, mass, his dad came to witness, okay, maybe my son is gonna turn out to do something good with his life. And as he's holding the cup, there was so much wrath and holiness of God that came over him that he couldn't handle it. And he ran off, right? He just ran out. And everyone's like, uh, so I guess we're not getting mass today or how are we doing this? Freaks out. His dad, obviously super embarrassed. is like, well, I was right. Should've been a lawyer. We don't do that here. This is a holy space because of the finished work of Christ. We get to approach that throne of grace to help in a time of need. And I don't know what some of you, I know what some of you are going through. I don't know what all of you are going through. And some of you are like Habakkuk that you're in a really hard, dark place. And I hope that today you can say, I need to live by faith. And I don't just need to know the things about who Jesus is. I don't need just to know the theology. I need to believe, I need to believe this my heart. And so we get to partake of these elements and to remember the finished work of Christ. So as we do these, I just would ask that you're a follower of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, I would love for you to partake of these elements. If you're not, I just ask that you remain seated. Uh, feel free to sing along with the worship team as they sing a couple songs. Um, but as they do that, and as we partake of these elements, just reflect on the goodness of God, on his holiness, on his justice that has been, been imputed to us through, through his son, through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, I get to approach you. I get to approach a holy God. I get to approach a God who cannot stand or bear to look at sin. And if it wasn't for the finished work of your son, his imputed righteousness in me, I wouldn't be able to do this. So I thank you for your son, the sacrifice that he made. Thank you for your spirit that now indwells and empowers us to, to give us more faith, to believe these things that happened so many years ago. And so I pray that as we partake of these elements that you'd be honored, you'd be glorified in our hearts, that if there's sin that needs to be repented of, that we would repent, knowing that you are faithful and just, forgive us of our sins, and that we would continue to walk the gospel, not out of guilt or out of shame, but to look at others and say, man, I'm a sinner and I cannot compare myself to others. I can only compare myself to Christ. And he is the one who gives me his righteousness. I pray that would be our heart this week now and always. We love you and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.